Welcome to the Berlin Security Beat, a podcast from the Center for International Security at the Hertie School in Berlin. I'm Katharina Emschelmann, Deputy Director at the Center. Each episode, we invite an international security scholar to help unpack a hot topic that's made the news. In today's episode, we talk about peacekeeping. To maintain international peace and security is the stated purpose of the United Nations. Its key tool are peacekeeping missions. Over the past 70-plus years, the UN has deployed so-called blue helmets to some of the most complicated conflicts. Despite scientific evidence of overall success, headlines still frequently read, Why UN Peacekeeping Fails. That's why I called Andrea Ruggeri, Professor of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Oxford. His research focuses on peacekeeping and civil wars. Andrea and I discuss why and how peacekeeping works, when to deploy peacekeepers and when not to, how to use diversity in mission composition as an asset, how geopolitics influence decision-making at the UN Security Council, and finally, where to get the best coffee. Now, I'm excited to welcome Andrea Ruggeri as our May guest scholar on the Berlin Security Beat. Hello, Andrea. Hi, nice to see you. <laughs> Great seeing you. I called you to talk about peacekeeping, but first coffee. The artist Christoph Niemann has a great visual essay that traces his love for coffee drawn in coffee on napkins. It's hilarious. So tell me your coffee biography. Too many, too little cups and only espresso. <laughs> What's the best cup you ever had? Oh, uh, Naples for sure. <laughs> I would imagine and the worst. Oh, actually too many. Living in the UK and traveling a lot in the US is easy. <laughs> All right. You know, this is the Berlin security beat. And I always ask, what song would you say best describes the current state of the world? Well, I have one song and a piece of jazz because mostly I listen jazz. The song is unfortunately War by Bob Marley, 1967. It was a great song. It was a song based on a speech done at the UN Assembly by and it speaks about today because, you know, it talks about first class and second class citizens and, uh, and conflict. And also is a song that I used to play in my previous life when I used to play the trumpet. The other piece that is something that I suggest everyone to listen is an album, Focus. <laughs> it's a good name for who does research. And is by Stan Getz and Eddie Soter, 1961. And the piece I love is Night Rider because I use it a lot when I write in the night. May 29 is the International Day of UN Peacekeepers. And like every year, I fully expect the headlines to range from peacekeeping works to why peacekeeping fails. What's up with that discrepancy? Usually the public discourse and social media tend to portray peace operation as a failure. And this is one of the most interesting aspects because there is a huge agreement among uh, scholars that actually peacekeeping works. That's interesting. This is, I think, one of the major divergence between scientific work and public discourse. Why do you think that is? I think first there is a bias 
in terms of you need to make headlines, that you have to make a, a strong story. And that also is a reporting bias. So if you interview people, if you ask locals, most of the story they will report are negative stories. And there are negative stories because the UN peace operation, we have histories of uh, uh, sexual misconduct, transmission of disease. You know, Haiti has been a case, but we can uh, remember a lot of cases. But, you know, it would be hard for a reporter to find people say, actually, you know, they help me to feel safer. So there is first the reporting bias. Uh, the second one is the difficult to think contrafactually. You know, we want to try to have some methods that help us to tell us if the UN were not here, we would have more or less civilian deaths. And uh, we have reached that level in academic work. And I think maybe it's our fault that we are not able to really transmit it to a broader audience. So it's great that you're coming on the podcast and help us transmit. So before we talk about the factors that influence more or less success in peacekeeping missions, I'd like to cover a few basics and do a quick back and forth. Can you tell us who decides on a peacekeeping operation? There are 77 peace operations going on. Uh, the United Nations is the main provider, but then we have the European Union with 17, the OSCE with 15, African Union is another regional organization that provide very important mission, actually one of the largest in, in Somalia. So, okay, every single organization has different decision making. However, you know, they act under international law and UN resolution. So actually, long story short, the most important uh, gatekeeper is the UN Security Council with the five permanent member and the 10 rotating non-permanent members. All right. And what are the principles that underlie UN peacekeeping missions? So you have to think that the UN Charter was not written to think about the security issues we are facing nowadays. So the idea was to keep peace, but between states. Nowadays, actually, most of the conflicts are within states. Every time that there is a resolution the United Nations have to cite one chapter of the charter. And the chapter six is about diplomatic means. Chapter seven is about force. Since the peacekeeping is not explicit in the charter, usually people talk about chapter 6.5, that is in the middle. <laughs> Once upon a time, the core criterion were neutrality, the um, capacity to avoid the use of violence and the approval of all parties. But this has been changing because um, the international system has changed, conflict has been changed, new norms such as responsibility to protect has emerged. And uh, so I think uh, uh, neutrality is not maybe any longer the core pillar and you don't need always the approval of all parties. But of course, this opens a huge debate about sovereignty, international law and human rights. So I think that nowadays the major characteristic of peace operation is the protection of civilians. All right. How many UN peacekeepers are there? Who are they and who pays for them? Nowadays, there are 87,000 uniform people for the United Nations. And this is an interesting trend because 
1989, there were only 11,000. So there's been an increase of uh, blue helmets. But also when you ask me, who are they? This is another interesting story because this is actually a quiz that I usually do with my students. <laughs> and I ask, so who do you think are the top five? And I teach a doctor they assume is either the US or the UK. <laughs> Far off. <laughs> Far off indeed. Or they think is Scandinavian countries. And again, that's a mistake. It's true that in the early 90s, Canada and Scandinavian countries used to supply a lot. But today is actually Bangladesh, Rwanda, Ethiopia, India, Pakistan as a top five. This is actually an interesting debate. To what extent the global north is free riding on the global south? Because if I look at the first country from global north providing peacekeepers, it's actually Italy, mostly for the mission in Lebanon. Then it's France, but you have to go really down the list to arrive to these countries. So you ask me how many, you ask me who, and in the sense of who, in the early 90s, there were only 46 countries providing peacekeepers. Today is 120. So we have increased dramatically, not just the numbers, but also the providers. Why do you think that is? Okay, <laughs> for several reasons. So I would say that uh, first, going really basic, we want to maybe state that United Nations has not a permanent army. And so one of the major issue of the United Nations and the Department and Office of Peace Operation is to find constantly national armies willing to provide. So what does it mean? It means that sometimes you have the mandate to have 10,000, or if you think about South Sudan today, 14,000. And it's hard to find a single country or a couple of countries willing to provide all these people. So if you think, as I said, you know, uh, Bangladesh and Rwanda, they provide high numbers, but like 6,000. So the highest numbers are Bangladesh and Rwanda, 6,000 each one in different missions. So to come up with such a large mission, you really need to go around to ask many countries. And so we have, uh, I remember that the, the NDRC, MONUSCO, in 2010 had something like 56 different national armies. You and two co-authors wrote a book composing peace on that exact topic. How are the UN peacekeeping missions composed? How are they diverse? And how does it matter that they are diverse? Maybe you can tell us about what you found. Discussing with Vincenzo, That's Vincenzo Bove. Vincenzo Bove. For instance, you know, we were talking about football and football teams. And one of the questions was, you know, is it better to have a diverse football team or is it better to have all players from the same country? So that was the first way. And I said, okay, how does the United Nations <laughs> perform on that? So we started to look at different heterogeneity or diversity. So among the Blue Helmets, And we found that actually diversity can improve the performance in terms of protection of civilians and conflict resolution in terms of battle deaths. How so? So one of the major findings is complementarity of skills. Mm -hmm. Having people from different backgrounds, different military culture and training can provide a set of unique skills that can be extremely flexible. So I can provide some example. In, in the Lebanese case, for instance, of Chiara Rufa, our also co-author in the book, she has qualitative evidence to show how 
the attitude of Italian, for instance, uh, peacekeepers or French peacekeepers were complementary, but also were triggering different behavior. For instance, the Italian, they really like to patrol walking in the villages. Mm -hmm. The French were always going very fast in their uh, armored uh, vehicles. So they had the military capacity, the skill to show muscular deterrence, but the capacity to talk, speak, and get information was by the Italian. So all these diversity of skills has helped. Another one that we believe, though, needs further analysis is monitoring. So if you are in a very homogeneous situation, naming and shaming or whistleblowing is very hard. Whereas if you are from different nationalities, reporting misbehavior of other peacekeepers, it's easier. Ah, all right. And misbehavior is a major problem because you want to build trust with the locals. So if you can stop immediately or punish immediately misbehavior with the locals and diversity, we suggest it does, that's a way to be more effective. What about the leadership? Does it help if the leadership comes from a different country than the Blue Helmets? You know, as a famous chapter by Chuck Tilly says, it depends. So it depends on one aspect. So first, what do we mean for leadership? In our book, we said top leadership, force commander and special representative. So does it matter if they are diverse? Yes, in the sense that if we measure in terms of nationalities, previous experience, language, and religions, actually diversity between the political leadership and military leadership is good. We see a systematic decline of violence. However, there is one problem that we found. So if we look at the other dimension, that is not just between the two leaders, but the first commanders and the blue helmets, we found that actually if the first commander has a minority of uh, soldiers coming from his country, and I'm saying his because in our data set we have only one female force commander, we find that for him is harder to protect civilians. So diversity, what we call it vertical diversity, so whether the force commanders has not many blue helmets from his own country can be a barrier to protect civilians. Are there other instances in which diversity can cause a problem? Yes, Another dimension is the diversity or distance between blue helmets and the locals per se. Oh, right. You can think that clearly the language that you speak can maybe facilitate or not also their religion. So something where we find is that countries on average, if a blue helmet comes from neighboring countries, has negative effect. But not if this blue helmet speaks the same language or has a similar religion. So maybe the problem is uh, having some national interest on what's going on on the field and not being able to have some uh, emotional normative uh, convergence with the locals. Now that we're talking national interests, I would like to know, how does the evolving geostrategic environment with high levels of tension between the permanent five, so the United States, China, Russia, France, and the UK, how does that affect UN peacekeeping? Well, clearly, it does affect in several ways. First, if we think financially, you asked before who pays for that. So the money that the UN gets 
is basically based on almost an algorithm as a function of the GDP. So the major is the U.S. providing money, okay? By the way, you know, on average, we pay $6.5 billion for peacekeeping operation. The U.S. spends, if I'm not wrong, $732 billion in defense. So even Norway, that is a fantastic, lovely, peace-oriented country, spends more in defense. Norway spends $7 billion, whereas the total budget of uh, peacekeeping mission is $6.5 billion. So one of the issues that we could have, if there is disagreement and withdrawal, we could have major financial effect. Another point is, for instance, China, even though it's a permanent member, and one of the norm is that P5 don't really participate as troops in peacekeeping mission, China is in the top 10 of countries providing peacekeepers. I think nowadays with 2,500. So I see some possible tension because there will be a moment where the P5 will have a tension whether China can be present. And I think that China is present in all African mission with some token and some larger. And, you know, one example of, uh, I would say, failure that was due by P5 was a mission that usually students, but also the large audience don't think about, that is the UNSMIS. The mission in Syria in 2012 that lasted really few months from April to August. And I think that was a failure because it was really a compromise among the P5, but it went really against any finding about effectiveness of peacekeeping operation. How so? Well, what is the perfect (laughs) peace operation? The perfect peace operation is large with a very strong mandate in terms of civilian protection, capacity to be in several locations. In my work with Han Dorsten and Giselis, we find that it does matter not just the overall size, how many blue helmets, but where they go. And for instance, also Lisa Haldman and colleagues found that observer are not enough. You need police and troops. So in this case, they gave a mandate only as observer. They, I think, set a max of 300 and they got 297. And now we are looking at a country that is not enormous, but at that time was 20 million people and there was a clear escalation of conflict. And these uh, 300 observer were placed in nine different location. So that is the perfect recipe to have a failure. And you think that the P5 couldn't agree on anything else and that foreshadows future conflict? Exactly. I think that was the point. And in this case, and I'm going to maybe make a provocation, perhaps it's better not to go with a UN peace operation. Because now the previous failure has jeopardized or made harder to think about possible deployment activities. I think that in that moment, the political logic was clearly much stronger than a scientific policy effective logic. So what would you say are the policy implications of your research? So we studied whether it's important where the peacekeeper go. And also we have done some simulation where we showed that you need some substantive number of individuals, and they can actually stop the fighting. So clearly thinking subnationally 
is important. However, and this is not my work, but if I look at the issues that there are micro local dynamics, but also national. So recently, the new book by Robert Blair suggests that reform in transnational justice is extremely important. But also the other policy implication I suggested, and this is mostly from my book with uh, Vincenzo and Chiara, Composing Peace, is that we really want to think how we compose this mission. And we want to try to use diversity as a positive and effective asset. Whereas nowadays is mostly understood as logistics or a possible political bargain from some countries with the UN, rather than think systematically who, where, and how we can provide peacekeepers. What is the extreme policy implication? Maybe we need a permanent UN army. I know this is a provocation and very idealistic. The other one is actually, and the United Nations is working more systematically about that, is to think about lessons learned and try to learn within the mission, but also among the country that are the main provider of peacekeeping. All right. Given the disagreements between the P5 that we talked about, I would say that the UN army is probably an issue for the more distant future. So I was wondering, in the immediate future, are you optimistic or pessimistic about UN peacekeeping? Wow. This is an extremely hard question indeed. All the scientific research shows some limits on peacekeeping, but that they can be overcome from the sexual harassment that has been not resolved, but mitigated, including more female peacekeepers, to thinking about the different use of new technologies, such as drones and satellites, to get better information. I want to be optimistic. Of course, I don't have any strength to the power. I can just speak to the power. Last question. Professor Paul Post from the University of Chicago tweets about what he calls cool IR papers each week. I think that's, um, well, cool. So I want to play too. What's the coolest IR paper you've come across recently? Okay, I'm going to mention two papers about peacekeeping. One paper is by Jessica Di Salvatore, Peacekeepers Against uh, Criminal Violence. And in this paper, she shows how the order and relative stability that peacekeeper can bring can also actually have unintended consequence on uh, organized crime. And she shows how police from the United Nations can actually mitigate this. The other paper that is one of the most important paper that we want to think about peacekeeping is by Liz Howard and uh, Anjali Dial, The Use of Force in UN Peacekeeping. Why this is a great paper? It's a great paper because it tells us that The UN Security Council is keeping to give more mandate according Chapter 7, so the use of force. But actually, peacekeeping is not effective just through the brutal use of force. It's effective because there are ways to persuade locals via daily socialization, helping with different governance programs. So that's an important paper because it's telling us that Maybe, and they say for psychological and group decision-making, the P5 think that force is the solution, but actually force is not the solution. So these are, I think, two fantastic papers that are recent and they are important for IR and especially for peace operation. Thank you very much. 
And thanks for doing this. Thank you, Katerina. This was an episode of the Berlin Security Beat, a podcast from the Center for International Security at the Hertie School in Berlin. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, review, and tell a friend. And of course, don't miss our next episode coming out next month. 